0: Uh, it was probably um, uh, I'm bad with time, so uh, you know I'm 37 now, and I was about in uh, eighth or ninth grade, uh, so I was 14 years old, 15 years old. Raise your hand if you've ever been 14 years old. Okay, raise your hand if you're 14 now. No one. Fantastic. Um, so just kidding. Uh, I was sitting in a deer stand reading a book by Brendan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Uh, Brendan passed away a few years ago, and I've listened to. Uh, many hours of his teachings. And, and Brennan's an interesting guy because he uh, was a monk for a little while, he was a pastor, he was relapsed back into alcoholism on and off. He had these strange experiences where. One weekend, people would hear him preach of the love of God, and then two weeks later, he would be back in rehab. And, and, and only a man that broken could truly speak on the love of God, I think, because he really believed God loved him. And, and then, you know, he spent many, many years at the end of his life um, free from, from alcohol and uh, teaching about God's love. And I remember as a young man reading this book... And it was the first time that I proposed a question to myself that that I've said several times leading worship, or I used to say to the youth a lot. But Brendan proposed the question, when when you die and you stand before the Lord, Brendan believed God's going to, he's going to ask you just one question. He's going to say, do you believe that I loved you? Just as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are going to be as we should be. Do you believe that Jesus loves you just as you are this moment, not how you're going to be after you? do all the worship stuff this morning. Not how you were last night when you really got ready or not how you were uh, when you were arguing with someone on the way to church. Because sometimes going to church creates the most interesting arguments with people we love. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, Growing up, I remember just getting in so many fights over what I had to wear going, oh gosh, come on. Do you believe Jesus loves you just as you are? And that question has rippled to my life to this, this day, to this week when I go through dark moments in my mind, in my heart. I have to text people and say, hey, pray for me. I've got darkness just coming over my mind and I need help. And the people who love me most, they still propose that idea, the gospel. Do I believe that Jesus actually loves me? In light of all that, uh, here's a video quote from Brennan Manning and then we'll get rolling on uh, women caught in adultery.
1: The compassion of Jesus is the compassion of Almighty God and Jesus says to your heart and mind tonight don't ever be so foolish as to measure my compassion for you in terms of your compassion for one another don't ever be so silly as to compare your thin pallid, wavering moody dependent on smooth circumstances human compassion with mine for I am God as well as man when you read in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion, it is saying his gut was wrenched, his heart torn open, the most vulnerable part of his being laid bare. The ground of all being shook, the source of all life trembled, the heart of all love burst open, and the unfathomable depths of the relentless tenderness was laid bare. Your Christian life and mine don't make any sense unless in the depth of our beings we believe that Jesus, not only knows what hurts us, but knowing, seeks us out, whatever our poverty, whatever our pain. His plea to his people is, come now wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. And I love you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. Do you really believe this, that with all the wrong turns you made in your past, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ loves you? Not the person next to you, not the church, not the world, but that he loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. That he loves you in the morning sun and the evening rain, without caution, regret, boundary, limit, no matter what's gone down. He can't stop loving you. This is the Jesus. Of the Gospels.
0: Do we believe that Jesus loves us? Uh, We're going to continue in John. We're in John chapter 8 or technically john chapter 7 however you work that out Um, we're going to specifically focus on verses 2 through 11 Uh, we'll go back to john 3 at some point as well Um, and like always if you're taking notes i'm sorry we are all over the place in the bible but it'll be on the screen so uh, you can follow that Um, if you notice as soon as you open this section you might see something strange in your bible right if you're looking at it um, there's some brackets maybe a parenthetical note are you familiar with this Shake your heads, yes, even if you're not. So that at least I, I'm believing. Yeah. So there's this weird thing that it says. Um, there's a, yours might say something else. It might even be an asterisk at the bottom that you go and read. But it says earliest manuscripts do not include seven thirty one whatever through eight eleven, right? And so then you look at that and you might get on some sort of weird TikTok YouTube short trainer and be like, see. This whole thing's false, look at that. See, someone later added it. Christians are so stupid they forgot to take that part out. See, we can't believe in this whole thing because they added it later, they're liars. It's so silly, and, and so I wanna cover that. This is super not important in one sense, but it also has to be covered because it's a huge tension in our culture, this idea that the Bible may have had editors and, and scribes and such things. Um, it's worth noting that those who are well above my pay grade, those who study this, those who have been looking at this for many, many, many years, hundreds of years, have still chosen to include this in scripture. The reason that you have that asterisk is because textual criticism matters. And and because of academia, because people care to preserve what's right. And so what they're noting to you is that the earliest manuscripts we have, the absolute earliest Greek manuscripts we have of John's gospel, don't include this section. We have a myriad that do, but the earliest ones do not. And that leaves scholars to conclude this very basic thought. This is still the words of God. This is still true for us. It's still something we need to read. It doesn't contradict anything of Jesus. In fact, it matches several patterns of Jesus. Some argue that it belongs more in Matthew. Some argue that maybe it was in Luke. Uh, Traditionally, it's seen somewhat here in John. And so this is where it's been put. But the understanding is that as we look at this, say, hey, this was added later by the early church. Much like when we had the discussion on the Lord's Prayer. We've done this several times in here. And the Lord's Prayer ends with this famous line, for thine is the... Yeah, and you remember we talked about this. Did Jesus say that? No. Like, that's, that was not in the earth. Jesus probably didn't say that, right? But the early church added that to have a conclusion to their prayer in following the act of Jesus. How do we pray, Lord? And then he tells them. And so they had a conclusion that to point to, hey, in the same idea of hallowed be your name, thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory, forever and ever, amen. And so I, the early church, has been praying it for centuries, and I think we should as well. Same thing here. They've been reading this, seeing this in the life of Jesus. Uh, there's several things in here that point us to, this is an eyewitness account. Um, uh, one fact is that, that, um, Jesus does this weird thing where he writes on the ground and it's never explained. Never. Anywhere in scripture is that explained. Not even in Christian history is there a solid like, oh, this is what was happening. And that leads people to say, you know what? Someone actually saw this. Like, if they were just trying to make some fanciful idea about a man who didn't really exist, why would they leave in these details that don't mean anything? That's not something that happened in ancient writing. And so, if there's any tension with you in seeing that, I just wanted to lean into it and say, hey, scholars conclude this is definitely the Word of God. There are things in here that are for uh, Jesus, whether it belongs specifically in this spot in John or in Matthew, it's still a part of the life of Christ. And, and I need to make one other statement, just because this is how historical integrity works. I'm sorry if this is boring. This is a small aside for a few minutes. Um If you have this issue where there is no historical Jesus or the history of Jesus is tense or or I struggle with the the historical ideas of Jesus, if you've heard that or you ever run across some sort of video online or something, you need to understand that if we're going to hold Jesus up to that scope, then your favorite academic institution, you need to discredit their philosophy department, their history department, and their language department because all of them are pulling from the same ancient texts in which we have far less, infinitely less like a thousand to one documents that we have of the gospels we have copies on copies and copies and copies all through history of the gospels we have very little to conclude that the iliad was ever fully written in in the ways that we have it we have very little to conclude that caesar actually lived in fact we have more historical accounts and writings of the gospels than the fact that abraham lincoln existed so uh, before you get so critical about that take a step back and say that's not how history works by the way we don't have one document and it's argued on with thousands can we get there are we okay Okay, cool. Let's read it together now. I feel like I had to cover that because like you see that and you're like, whoa, whoa. Okay. Now we're done. If, if you were bored and you hate history and you hate all that, please just bring up. Okay. Yeah. Come back. Here we are. Ready? Say, I'm here. Here we go. Eight chapter two. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them, still in this festival, still in the Temple of Booths or the Festival of Booth, still all these people there, so many people are filling this area, right? And Jesus begins to teach and he's surrounded by people. Sometimes we see this as an isolated incident, like that happened in the corner on the side. There are people everywhere, just so many people around, huge gathering of people. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to sown such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charges to bring against him. We know this is happening. This is already, the, John's already told us, man, they want they want to get rid of this Jesus guy. They're sick of him usurping them. They're really tired of him gaining all this honor, all this authority. You can listen back to other sermons, have unpacked that, but they're ready. They're ready to trap him. And so they lay this ingenious trap. The scribes and Pharisees are religious leaders of the day. And, and just interesting, we, it's easy to forget this because sometimes if you've grown up in church circles or you've just heard people called a Pharisee, like a hypocrite or whatever, you need to remember these people were looked to As the religious leaders of the day, they were looked to as the examples to connect to God. They were looked to as the examples for righteousness. And here they are trapping Jesus, trapping him by throwing this woman before him. So they parade this woman in. Again, people everywhere. Bring this woman in, throw her down, say, hey, she was caught. In adultery, in this culture, right? If you were to say someone has been caught, if they were and they were Pharisees, they would memorize the Old Testament. They know to say that she was caught would say that they know firsthand they have witness account this wasn't something they heard through the grapevine this wasn't something they saw her coming and going they have firsthand evidence that she was caught in adultery they are peeping this in some way they know firsthand that's what they're declaring when they say we know she was caught in adultery this woman's been caught eyewitness accounts think of just for a minute this woman the humiliation the guilt the shame her life's over this is it she knows it. She knows this is it. This is, I'm, everyone knows now. Even people who aren't from around here, because all these people are gathering for, for this festival. Everybody knows now. This woman has nothing left now. Absolute humiliation, guilt and shame, guilt and shame. The law of Moses says we should stone such a woman. It was really hard to convict someone of capital offense uh, in this time uh, for several reasons. And we could talk about things that the Mishnah said, and we could talk about um, the the Hebrew laws. But basically, in general, um, we didn't want to just go around killing people back in the early days because everyone made mistakes. And if you go back and read Israel's history, we did a whole sermon series on them playing the harlot, on being uh, being, uh, known as an adulterous culture and, and the bride who leaves. And so in general, so many of them were guilty of this sort of thing. Why aren't all of them being sown and killed all the time? Well, because there was also a tension of you had to really have hard evidence. You had to have two or more people who actually saw it, who can corroborate their stories. And you can read all sorts of situations where these stories weren't able to be easily corroborated. Um, But in general... The law of Moses said that they had to be stoned. This comes mostly from Deuteronomy 17. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to... Ah, what does it not specifically say? Stoning right that's interesting it's interesting to note that there's something else going on here and maybe there's there's some local laws or things that were missing something that, that that pharisee group had set up but it doesn't specifically say stoning here there are some scriptures that do say stoning that would say like hey were they betrothed or not and we could look into that but that's not important for this time they're pulling from the scripture hey we got a killer the law of moses says we should stone such a woman such a woman you know Tennis and golf are individual sports. Soccer is a team sport. Adultery is a team sport. Takes two to tango, as they say in the West. I don't know what they say, uh, but takes two to tango. So here's the big. You read this and you start wondering of their entrapment. Who's not here? And and Leviticus twenty ten says what? Just the woman should be stoned? No. It says they both should be put to death where is this man all of a sudden you start feeling the tension of the story like hold on Uh, this doesn't add up this doesn't it reminds me of the way we watch uh, presidential debates and and everyone like like say you hear the president say this and one person's like see he said this he's so wonderful and everyone's like well actually 10 years ago he said this and secretly this like all those smear campaigns there's always like something underneath that we're missing and that's where the story's pulling us also wait where's the guy who is the guy and blood's all sorts of questions. Are one of the Pharisees the guy? Was one of the scribe? Was the guy there? Is the guy off hiding somewhere? It seems like he's not caught. So all of a sudden, the motives of the Pharisees become very apparent. They're not interested in righteousness. They're not interested in the Lord. They're interested in trapping Jesus. They're interested in shaming people, in in power, in control. So then they set this trap. And I want you to just imagine how brilliant this trap was. And it might be hard if you don't understand this culture, but uh, Jesus has said in other gospels, you unpack who Jesus is. He says that he's gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me, I'll give you rest. Okay, if you're that kind of Messiah, then uh, you're going to execute this gal. Then all of a sudden, you're not gentle and lowly in heart. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, you're terrible. Come to me, I'll give you rest, and execute you. Ah, so Jesus can't easily say, "Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll kill you," right? You should be executed. But then if he says, I'm not going to obey the law of Moses or nullify the law of Moses, he can't be God, which John has unpacked for so much that he is God. That's the point. He is God. So now all of a sudden he's trapped. What's Jesus going to do? He can't be God and be gentle and loving. He can't be merciful and also uphold the law. He can't have justice and mercy together. Same thing we've spun several times. He can't do it. And so they've trapped him much more. You know who was in charge of killing people in this time? Rome. You know who couldn't kill people? Israel. They had no authority to do that. In fact, that they could be punished for doing that. And so, so there's this trap that if Jesus says she should be punished, they could also go to the Roman law and say, Hey, this guy, he's saying we should start stoning women. So you should probably stop him because he's going to usurp your whole Rome thing. That's a big deal at this time. So Jesus is clearly trapped. I want us to take a minute before we keep unpacking what happens in this story. Consider these characters. You've got a woman who's caught, and 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 maybe in some ways, as again, every story, everything we ever read, every narrative, every historical account, it's supposed to be pulling the readers into something. John wrote this to pull us into something. The author that put this here, however, the they were trying to draw us into something. So, what does it look like to relate to someone who's caught? Hands in the cookie jar. You've done it, and now not only are you caught, but you can't hide there's someone who's hiding the guy's not here he gets to hide he's not caught he's hiding he's culpable he's wrong should be put to death but he gets to hide no one knows he's off alone assumably we don't know but the lady here she's in front of everyone exposed life's ruined guilt and shame can you relate to those moments have you had situations in your life where you're constantly hiding shifting your suit of fig leaves so that no one knows how exposed and sinful you actually are or Maybe you've been exposed and it crushed you and now you're hiding all the more because you don't want to be further exposed. Maybe you relate to the scribes and Pharisees. They really think they've got this Jesus thing figured out. They really think they can find their one liner, their one trap, their one thing to say, ah, he's not really who he says he is. I don't really need to follow Jesus. I, I, I kind of want to follow Jesus when things are bad or when I'm around funeral times or, or cancerous times or whatever, but, but in general, I don't really need that because I can figure out the place that Jesus belongs. He's not as big as he says he is. He's actually exactly as big as I've made him as I can spend an hour a week doing the Jesus things. And then the rest of the time it doesn't matter because it's my life, it's my situation, power and control, back to Genesis three, like we talk about every week, you could be like God. You could decide good for evil for yourself. It's all about you. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We don't know what he was writing. We know that, uh, Roman officials sometimes would in the dirt, write Uh, verdicts, before they read them out loud to people. And so some scholars say, maybe, maybe, maybe he's writing down some sort of verdict. We don't know. Uh, Some people have assumed that he's writing a verse from Jeremiah or a verse from Deuteronomy, that that maybe he's writing the sins of people. Maybe you've historically heard, I know I grew up hearing, uh, I actually thought it was in scripture, because I grew up hearing it, that Jesus was actually writing the sins of the Pharisees. That's not there. We have no idea what he wrote. And just imagine how strange it is that they come to trap him. They're like, hey, see, what are you going to do? You're the guy that's got the quip one-liners. Every time we come to him, he just seems to just shut us up and mess us up. Now we've trapped you. What are you going to do? You feel that tension? What am I going to say next? Where's the sermon going? You don't know. I'm just drawing something up here. This carpet's terrible for drawing. My grandparents used to have the best carpet for drawing in. Or those old minivan seats that you could draw in. You remember that? Maybe that's just my life. Okay. Tension. At the very least, we're like, what's happening? It draws us in. What are we doing here? What's Jesus doing? He begins to write. And as they continue to ask him, so he's there, right? Just like the whole, like, if you've got a kid, mom, mom, dad, 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 dad. Like he's writing like, hey, hey, Jesus, come on. Hey, what? What's going on? What? He's just writing. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Uh, before we take this out of context and say, see, you can't, you can't judge anybody, right? You, you, you want to throw a stone at someone else, you, you take that same stone in your teeth. That's not quite what's happening here. Jesus is pulling from Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, and Leviticus, where, where specifically Deuteronomy 17 says, on the evidence of two witnesses, or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hand of all the people, you shall purge the evil from your midst. Here's why this was worded this way, and here's how it worked out practically in their culture. If I decide with my wife, we're really, we're really going to get this person in trouble, we're sick of them, and we're going to corroborate how they're just really awful, right? Then we go and we go tell the judge, hey, this person's really awful. So, oh, off with their head. They're done. If all of a sudden my wife and I have to be the ones to cut off their head, there's a little bit more culpability to sharpen the blade, to, to pull the whatever for the pulley system, right? Those are all the noises that happen. There's a little bit of culpability on our part for that. But also beyond that, then if they find out that actually we lied, then it gets turned right back on us. Now you have a ton of witnesses that say, hey, David and Nikki falsified this. Ah, now it comes back on us. Now we get stoned. We get our head cut off. See, I'm saying there's a culpability there. That's why it was really hard to convict people because you need two witnesses and you had to be culpable. Jesus was pulling from the law. What he was saying was her blood's on your hands. You, you really think that she deserves to die? Then it's on you. He so quickly twists it. They had to be responsible for killing her. And if they were responsible as the witnesses, as the law says, the law they're trying to trap Jesus in, Now who's capable of breaking Roman law? Oh, man, Jesus is so incredible. He's so smart, so brilliant. They think they've got him. So often we think we've got Jesus. We've got him figured out. And thank the Lord that he loves us enough to keep breaking through our arrogance, our trappings, our false sense of religiosity. Breaks right through it. And once more, he bent down to ride on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. They all went away. No one was willing to stone her and take responsibility for that, revealing their hearts, revealing what they're actually wanting. They weren't willing to be culpable for her death in this fake trial trap. They threw at Jesus. Jesus calls out their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness. They were convicted. And whether or not they were convicted of specific sin, you know, some people say that this law uh, in Deuteronomy is pointing to where you couldn't be culpable of the same sin. And so maybe all these guys were adulterers and they realize that we don't know that. But what we do know is they were convicted, that they left because they weren't willing to stone her. They weren't willing to take on the responsibility because they had sin in their own life. Jesus upholds both laws here. So interesting. You, you think the more you unpack this story in your mind, you're like, whoa, hold on. Did, did Jesus break the Roman law of the time? No. Did he say, you're fine, daughter. You're not You're not actually that bad. You've never sinned. You're okay. No, he didn't say that either. doesn't say that she's not an adulterer. doesn't say she's not culpable of doing wrong. He doesn't even say that she's not deserving of death. He just points it back to them and calls out, hey, if you're really going to follow the Lord, then you should really follow the Lord. Are you really willing to do this or are you just trying to have power, control to trap other people? And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, which is a term of respect. It's like when Jesus called his mother woman back in John. This isn't like woman. That's not like that. It's not like that. It's, It's more endearing, gentle woman. Where are they? Has no one condemned you where are all these people that have been gathered to to judge you to to separate you and declare you as wrong to to put a sentence on you that's what the word condemned means where where are these people has no one stuck around verse 11 she said no one lord did some dives into this word lord i wanted it to be a profession of her worshiping and seeking Jesus. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to say, see, Jesus forgives her and she believes in Jesus. We don't get that, unfortunately. And so we're left to, why is this word Lord so vague? Because the word Lord can just mean, sir, term of respect. She just assumably had this guy keep her from being stoned by the mean religious leaders. So of course she calls him, sir. Yes, sir. Right. Or it also could mean a deeper sense. It could mean that she's calling him the Lord. We don't know we don't know and i think that's interesting it pulls us into a nicodemus situation was nicodemus repentant and a follower of jesus we don't know it sure seems that way we have evidence to suggest that but here this story points it back to us man how do we relate to this woman how do we utter the word lords off or lord off our lips think about josh think about her situation this, this man who has the ability to silence those who are shaming her and guilting her, those who are, are throwing her before the law, those who, I mean, she was just in a situation, uh, pack mentality, all these people rallied together. She was just literally about to have a whole bunch of rocks thrown at her. Rocks picked up off the ground, thrown at her until she's dead. Can you imagine that? And she's in this situation where all these people are, hey, we're about to stone you. And then they get silenced by this, this man who says he's God, by this prophet. She's heard of Jesus, no doubt. He's been teaching in the area what's he going to say? What's he going to do? He says he's God. He just silenced the religious leaders. So he's above them. We talked about kind of the Jesus Kung Fu, right? Where, where, when the religious leaders ask Jesus a question, they're not just like, Hey, what you going to do, Jesus. They're actually literally trying to take honor from him. They're trying to rob him so they can climb the ladder of awesomeness. And Jesus, he just showed, no, I'm on top actually. And so this woman standing there with, with one who is above all the religious leaders she knows, What's going to happen? We know the end of the story, so we have peace. But we have this building tension. Is, is he going to go turn her in? Is he going to go to the Romans? What is this, this one who can silence all the religious leaders going to do? Verse 11, And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Some of your translations might say, Go and flee your life of sin. Stop living your life of sin. That's the NIV The ESB says, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. The only person in the midst that was without sin was King Jesus. He was God. He is God. He's standing there and he says, anyone without sin, throw the first stone. But instead of throwing stones, instead of giving her some sort of verbal lashing, instead of turning her into any other authorities, he says, neither do I condemn you. The one that's already been declared as God in John, the one who has no sin, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. Those who say that the Bible is full of toxic masculinity and misogynistic have clearly never read it. Uh, When we preach through the Sermon on the Mount, we uh, emphasize that the kingdom is a safe place for women. And in a culture that's constantly swinging the pendulum on that, and it feels like uh, unless everything meets your criteria, maybe there's no safe place for anyone, Jesus steps in and says, no, 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 I am everything. And and in this culture, no matter how they were trying to belittle and abuse each other, whether they were poor, whether they were neglected, whether they were a woman, whether they were a child, Jesus steps in and says, no, my kingdom's a safe place for you because God didn't intend for you to be crushed by other people. God didn't intend for you to be crushed by religion. God intended you to be with him. So much so that God did everything to be with you. Jesus isn't just saying here that he won't condemn her because there's no more witnesses, you see. Oh, look, there's no one here, and I'm just me, so uh, I'm not going to condemn you. That would be a really silly reading of this. Jesus knows the depths of her sin. He knows the people not present. He knows the family ripple. If you've ever been a part of a divorce or a part of adultery or affairs, you know it hurts so many people, so many people. Jesus knows the depths of this. He knows the man cowering wherever he may be. Jesus knows that he's going to be taking the condemnation for all of them. He knows he will be crushed for all. As John the Baptist told us earlier in the beginning of John, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. We want to swap those phrases. It's so natural in our culture, so natural for my life to say, I'm going to go and sin no more so that he won't condemn me so that I'll be good enough, so that I'll gain something. We live in this religious rat race. We have this this tension of of man, if I could just get whatever I need to do to follow, if I get this next journal, if I do my devotion, if I've got several weeks of doing my, my rituals where I wake up and I've got this amount of science time and I read this scripture, and I pray for enough people and, and I really hit it with a great profound sermon or whatever it is. We put all these things up, whatever your thing is, and say, then he'll look at me and say, good job. Way to go, boy. You did it. Oh, oh. That's how we live. So we want that because it puts us in control. And, and really, we become God. We say, no, no, God's just a thing that we appease, that we control. I'm going to go sin no more so that Jesus won't condemn me so that he'll like me. Brendan Manning has this quote that I think so helpful here. He says, The good news means we can stop lying to ourselves. We can stop lying to ourselves. The sweet sound of amazing grace saves us from the necessity of self-deception. Jesus said these words in this order to her, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He said that because loving forgiveness and acceptance fuel change. Loving forgiveness, forgiveness and acceptance fuel change. Not the other way around. Jesus assured her of his love and acceptance before he gave her the command to go and change. He said, what your soul's craving is not him, not these broken relationships, not even being killed for your sin. That's not enough. Like you taking all the punishment, all these things, that's not enough for you. It can only be found in me. We don't go and tell the sexually sinful, the broken people in our culture, the people who who are messing up. We don't go and tell them of the diseases now they're thwarted with or, or how dishonorable and disgraceful we are. That's not our message, church. We tell them of a God who never stopped loving them, ever. Of a God who in their darkest moments still desires to have a right relationship with them. A God who bore the cross, their sin, their punishment, their brokenness so that he could have a right relationship with them. Jesus' last words on the cross weren't, go and fix yourself. I did part of this. Now go, don't screw it up, kids. Jesus' last words on the cross were what? It is finished. Say it. It is finished. Stop taking yourself to court. Stop spending your days trying to figure out how you've got to be better for God or better for yourself or better for mom and dad or better for, for your spouse or better for your kids or better so your boss thinks you're good enough or, or better for, for all the people around you or how you can start hiding things. I don't want people to know who I truly am because I've got to make sure people assess me in certain ways. People can't truly know the depths of my struggles with, with the internet or with alcohol or, or with pride. I've I got to be this person. I've got to do these things. Stop! None of those things are getting you what you're looking for. None of these things are completing you. You will spin that wheel, the lie of the enemy, until you die. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Our message to a dying world is not go and fix yourself, you scalawag slobs. It's look to the love and grace of Jesus. Guys, (laughs) Jesus is so awesome here. Like he doesn't, he doesn't just pull us in to this self-righteous, self-religious spinning thing to where we've got to be better. He actually turns away, silences those who want to use religion to crush other people. It's not who he is. And I'm so sorry if you've been hurt by church. If you're watching this at home and you're listening this later on, I'm so sorry you've been hurt by church. I've been hurt by church. It's only by the grace of God that I'm a preacher. I never wanted this life and all of a sudden God loves me enough to not let me avoid it. There's so many times when I find I could tell stories of being hurt by Christian people. You have stories of being hurt by the church of Christian people and church hurt is real. It's right up there with, with marriage hurt and parenting hurt because all of these things are supposed to point to the love of Jesus. They're supposed to point to how God loves you and wants a right relationship with you. You should be able to look at the church that comes together as one body in Jesus and say, that looks like how Jesus loves me. You should be able to look Look at a marriage and say, That looks like how Jesus loves me. You should be able to look at parents and say, That looks like how Jesus loves me. But instead, the world, the flesh, and the devil corrupt all those things. Because it's really hard to love the bride and hate their spouse. And so so quickly we despise the church, we despise those around us. And Jesus steps into all the religious monks and says, That's not what this is about. I'm different. It's not about the religious rat race. This is why last week we did the whole message on how we're one kingdom, one people, one body. Of course. We have to be willing to call each other out. That's why Ephesians tells us to speak truth in love. The Bible tells us over and over that we need to to encourage each other to bear each other's burden. This isn't a message of, no, 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 don't go out and tell people how they're wrong. Certainly, if we love each other, we should speak into them. How silly is it to say that we love other people, but we're not willing to call them out and say, hey, this is wrong. Hey, it looks like the way you're treating your spouse is really harsh. Hey, it looks like the way you're parenting is is kind of uh, careless. I love you enough to let you know that. True community True community, what Christ has called us to, always involves accountability and vulnerability. Your best friends, your closest relationships, are marked by accountability and vulnerability. The friends that you just get drinking, go drinking with, the friends that you text just to send you a meme to laugh about and don't actually deal with stuff, your friends that you get high with, those are not real community. Those are just people that help you escape reality. True friends hold us accountable because we have vulnerability with them. We share vulnerability and accountability. That's what church is supposed to be. We look to Jesus together. Jesus looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You are not condemned if you are in Christ. You are not judged, separated, set aside. If you are in Christ, you are welcome in. You are a new creation, other places say. You are sealed in his spirit, Ephesians 1 tells us. We have this tension in life where we walk around. I heard this growing up. I'm just a miserable saved sinner. Just walk around. "Ah, I'm just, just a saved sinner. Messing up all the time. There's no padding on the armrest in my chair in heaven. It'll be hard and cold because I'll be there, but I'm a saved sinner. The Bible tells us that you're a saint who sometimes sins. You're robed in righteousness. That he has gripped you and brought you in and said, now you're defined by me. You're not defined by your religious rat race. You're not defined by all the things you do to climb above. You're defined by King Jesus. This is why every week we say Jesus is everything. Say Jesus is everything. Romans goes on to say in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, anything in all of creation, nothing, In all of creation, imagine something. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. Nothing can separate you from Jesus. What connects you to Jesus is believing in Him, looking to Jesus, trusting in Him. Remind you of John 3 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Nah, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the verdict. This is the judgment. Here it is. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest their works be exposed. The self-deception that amazing grace ought free us from should bring us out exposed. Jesus knows you. All the things you try to hide, your self righteousness, the brokenness, the hurt, you're exposed. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and leave your life of sin. Go from now on and sin no more. The law can't get you there, others can't get you there, you can't get you there. Only Jesus can by his blood by His redemption that was paid for you through His love. Here in a moment, we're going to move into a time of the Lord's Supper, celebrating the table together. This is a time that we specifically remember Christ's life, death, and resurrection for us. His great grace his love for us. And, and as you hear this this morning, as you wrestle with these characters and you think through, man, maybe I'm hiding. I didn't. I'm not the one that's thrown in front of everyone. I'm not exposed. I can keep going. I can keep hiding. Maybe you relate to that chap. Dude who's, who's not exposed. Maybe you relate to the woman. Man, I'm, everyone knows I'm the worst person in the room. Maybe you are in the realm of constantly trying Jesus, trying to put him in a box, push him down. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you to hear this morning that if you believe in him, if you trust him, you're not condemned. As we move into this time of response, there'll be people around on the wings if you want someone to pray with. You can also come and and gather the elements during this time uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a moment. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Why? Because of his blood. Because he's the Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sin of the world. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when when we drink the juice and we eat the cracker, it's not just some religious ritual. It's something that ripples through time and space to remind us that only King Jesus can save us. No spinning of our own. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How can we go? How can we go and live differently? Because of his blood. Because he died and resurrected and now his life comes into us. His spirit inserts into us. Fundamentally changing us from the inside. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Take some time this morning... It's easy to rush. Oh, everyone stands up. People are going to go grab their stuff. We've got to move. We've got to do stuff. Take a moment this morning. Open your hands and breathe. Breathe and recognize that Jesus' words still speak to us today. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Repent. Neither do I condemn you. Someone here this morning needs to hear that. Jesus isn't here to condemn you, to whip you, to hate you, to abuse you. He's calling you in because he loves you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Stand with us as we respond and as we pray. Father, I ask that you would guide us in this time. We want to believe in your love. May the power of your spirit move in this time of response through our actions to, to remember as we go through, through the, the, the Lord's table that, that you showed us in Christ. I pray that these actions remind us rippling with your body that, that you love us that you died and rose again so we could have a right relationship with you. Gotta pray for those of us in here who, who feel exposed, who are hiding, who, who are pushing you aside. I pray that you would deliver us from evil, that your spirit would overcome to break down barriers, that you would guide us as one body to lean into you, to trust that because of Jesus we are not condemned, that we can go and live a true life walking away from sin because of who you are. I pray for those who need to let go of of sin and brokenness, of guilt, of shame this morning. God, may your spirit guide them to be so bold to trust. Trust in you. Thank you for your word telling us that, that you don't condemn us because of Jesus. Guide us as we respond. Thank you for your great love for us. Amen.